This is episode 27 of the Next Year Now podcast. Hi, I'm Damian Lupo, five-time author and The Money Mentor. If you want to take control of your life and finally achieve financial freedom, then you need to start listening to the Next Year Now podcast with my friend, Tom Hefner. Everyone listening in, just bring your team in and ask them a handful of questions. Number one, what's the vision of what we're doing? Two, what are the guidelines, or we call them fence posts? What's the purpose of what we're doing? Third question, how does your role and your responsibility have a direct impact to those two things? And if you have people staring at you, I'm pretty sure they're not connecting their personal desires to the company's objectives. Welcome to the Next Year Now podcast with Tom Hefner. Tom believes that if you really want to thrive at work and in life, then every day, purposeful habits and practices are vital. The Next Year Now podcast will not only help you identify and integrate these habits into your daily life, but also bring you key insights and lessons from some of the most successful people in their fields. And here is your host, Tom Hefner. Hello, and welcome to the podcast devoted to helping you thrive at work and in life. The topic of habits and practices is always front and center in our discussion, but we also explore how we use these habits and practices to improve our personal development, productivity, creativity, health and well-being, business, and entrepreneurship. Today's episode is going to be a fun and unique dive into productivity and leadership. That's because we'll be speaking with Glenn Matson in just a moment. Glenn is a rock star consultant who specializes in helping leaders and business owners improve their business through better leadership, sales, and productivity. In our conversation, Glenn and I will be discussing how we can cultivate self-motivated team members, strategies for leading millennials, the most effective habits and practices to improve your productivity and efficiency at work, book recommendations to help achieve excellence at work and in life, and so much more. Glenn Matson is president of Matson Enterprise, a Sandler training, consulting, and training firm specializing in sales and management productivity and effectiveness. Glenn's firm conducts public and private workshops, corporate programs, and one-on-one strategic sessions for corporate executives, business owners, and individuals who find themselves in the sales management role. Glenn helps individuals who are on their own or part of a larger organization overcome the roadblocks keeping them from reaching their definition of success. He really feels that if you know the why, you can overcome the how. Glenn follows a simple process of defining where his client wishes to be in comparison to their current as-is status. And then once we have an understanding of the gap, and that's agreed upon, the plan to connect the two is unique to the individual attitudes, behaviors, techniques that need to be developed. Glenn, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Look forward to it. I want to dive right into the thick of this conversation, and, and that's around leadership and optimizing our time and efficiency and and really what we work on day to day. Because I know that from my own experience, those two things can have a huge impact on our professional and personal lives. Let's address leadership first, and in particular, leadership and its impact on the motivation of employees. One of the things I hear uh, about a lot, reading business blogs and magazines and my own experience is the lack of self-motivated employees. There seems to be varying reasons, uh, burnout at work, lack of purpose or meaning, maybe it's the wrong fit, uh, and on and on. If we're leading a team in our own work and we have an employee who's not self-motivated, how can we as leaders get them motivated? That is a that is the magic question. Right? So, <laughs> a $64 million question. Oh, yeah. Bigger than that. Um, well, the reality is, if you look at individuals, when they have, and there's always 
conversations, Tom, about execution or plan. Which one's more important? Do you want a good plan that's poorly executed or a poor plan that's well executed? And when we look at the gap between execution and plan, it's usually what's missing is motivation. It's interesting that people will say there's two parts of that, plan and execution. The reality is it's the same thing. If people aren't going to execute, you don't have a plan. So they are one, they're not separate, which is a, is something that has to be debunked. Now, if we look at motivation purely, motivation by definition, at least in my mind, is the internal and the external factors that really stimulate the desire and the energy that people have to be interested and committed to their job and or to their actions to attain a role. So again, it's the internal and external factors that stimulates their desire and their energy to be interested and committed to the goal. So more times than not, studies will show you that the majority of people that are downstream or that are employees, they don't even really understand why we're doing what we're doing. Then they may have a clarity of, you need to do this, but they don't understand the big picture of why, what does it mean, how does it impact the company, how does it impact me? So more times than not, leadership just tells people what to do. Now, when we look at motivation, Tom, it typically I have found in 25 years of doing this, there's only about six of motivational factors that really drive change. It's rewards, it's power, growth, fear of consequences, social factors, or achievement. And not all do not all of us have one motivational factor. There's sometimes right. there's three or four that are in one situation, right? So a lot of times what happens is, is that even when you look at supervision, people like to be supervised. 71% of the population would say they would do better if they were supervised. The problem is when they're supervised, they think that something's wrong. So when we look at motivation and we help people get motivated, motivation historically comes in the form of, do you know what you're supposed to be doing? Do you know why you're doing it? Do you know what it does in terms of how it impacts the greater cause. So more times than not, a simple answer is, do they even know why they're doing it? Do they know what the purpose is? Or is it just something that they're supposed to do? And if they don't know the big picture, that takes away energy that they have towards the end goal. So more times than not for motivation, again, assuming you have the right person, the right boss, right. it's communication, it's vision. And then unfortunately, when motivation doesn't happen, which it happens, that motivation's not there, you still have to go back and do the job, which means you have to have a successful mindset. So even in the limitations of motivation, because motivation is temporary and inconsistent, so there's highs and lows to it, like a, like a, a roller coaster. So in despite of your motivation, you still have to have accountability, responsibility, and ownership to your actions, which will drive you to do your tasks even when you don't want to. What role do you think, because uh, where the gap I see sometimes is that even defining the, uh, the kind of the purpose and things like that, um, sometimes you see people that kind of lack that intrinsic motivation or lack that intrinsic connection, if you will. And are there things that we can do to kind of connect to that as as leaders, if you will? Well, yeah, but then that becomes very individualized because you need to know what motivates the individuals. And unfortunately, <clears throat> I was just at a, a an offsite and I asked, what were the five characteristics that make your people the most successful people within your world. Just give me five characteristics. And even the leader stared at me and said, I don't know. <laughs> right. They did. They did. They, and then what they gave me, Tom, weren't even characteristics. Right. So when we look at that motivational piece, 
it is a strong factor for sure. And I would turn around and say that everyone listening in, just bring your team in and ask them a handful of questions. Number one, what's the vision of what we're doing? Two, what are the guidelines or we call them fence posts? What's the purpose of what we're doing? Third question, how does your role and your responsibility have a direct impact to those two things? And if you have people staring at you, I'm pretty sure they're not connecting their personal desires to the company's objectives. So that's probably a good indication that uh, either uh, the, the, you haven't maybe well defined those uh, those pieces, uh, or at least you haven't had those conversations with your employees. And I would probably say it's it's both of the other. And then, but your owners or your leaders may say, I have. But if you have and they don't know the answers, then it doesn't make a difference because they didn't get it. So you didn't do a good job explaining it to them. Are there special considerations or approaches for motivating employees who are millennials? You know, it's very interesting because there's studies come. I mean, <laughs> there are so many studies out there, Tom, about what to do with millennials, how to act, how to react, what their differences are, where they came from in terms of their belief systems, um, which I understand all that. But at the end of the day, I think what's happening for a fair amount is companies are bending and altering what they do and how they do it to fit with millennials who haven't even come to work for them yet or don't have a track record yet. So what I would suggest is with millennials is that more times than not, be aware of there are differences, but be aware of also that motivation, regardless of when you were born, doesn't change much. Communication, regardless of when you're born, doesn't change much. There is some studies out there that we do what we do for millennials because we think we should, and there's really no proof of concept that this works. There's a lot of studies coming out right now that people were following the geniuses in doing what they suggested, and no change has occurred. So there's a lot of very interesting material out there about millennials and what we should or shouldn't be doing. You know, it's interesting. In, in my experience, uh, so I work at the John Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory. So we're, we're a big 7,000 person research lab. And we, and we talk a lot about millennials because we're starting to hire a lot of them now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and people, you know, there's this kind of uh, dim view or dark view that millennials, you know, they, they don't want to put the work in. They don't want to do good work or, they, you know, they, they're, you know, a little bit uh, flitty. But what I've found, and I'd be curious to hear your experience um, is that they're incredibly engaged and incredibly hardworking. They have a, a lower threshold or a lower tolerance for working without connection to the purpose. Maybe in my experience or my dad's experience, you know, especially being in the Marine Corps for him, uh, your leader or your advisor or your supervisor was like, hey, go do this, right? And mm -hmm. you went and do that. You we went and did that, right? Like, yep. do this, you know, go hit for him. It was, you know, go sit, watch, uh, on ship for, you know, 12 hours. All right, Roger that. Or for me, it was, Hey, uh, go out into the field and go test this, uh, electronics equipment for the next five days, 12 hours a day. All right, I'll go do that. And yeah, maybe I had a, a, a you know, a, a little bit of an understanding of how that connected to the, the bigger picture. But in my experience, it seems like millennials, uh, unless that's made clear to them, because of the nature of just people changing jobs a lot more frequently because of social media, kind of uh, information is currency, people, they, they just leave. And I know, so I, I say that as a, is not a bad thing necessarily. It, it just requires us to be more uh, or better communicators, but that's just my, my thought. What, what do you think? Well, I, you know, you, you did it very well in terms of encapsulating a lot of the, the same thoughts I have. And I've seen across the, the, the country, I don't see these massive differences that all these experts say about millennials. I just haven't seen it. Now, do I see people that work hard? Absolutely. Do I see people who found themselves getting a job that should never have been hired? Absolutely. I don't think that has to do with a millennial, not a millennial. But I would say, because my background in psychology, is that if you look at how millennials grew up, one of the uh, or numerous things that 
if you follow the bouncing ball back when they were kids to now, it kind of makes sense. Two of the major issues that their parents, because most of their parents, not all, some were successful and they found by watching their parents, they discount two things that are important that you and I grew up with, which is hierarchy and authority. Hierarchy is knowing your place within the hierarchy of the organization. And if you're in the beginning level, why are you speaking to people about, you know, you just did, here's a hierarchy. This is where you fit. This is what you do. If you're on the <laughs> bottom, this is the tasks you get until you move up. This is how it is, right? right? So if you're on the bottom, you're making coffee right? and just how it is. So th- they have issues with hierarchy. And the other is, and when I say issues, it's not that they're rude about it. They just don't see it because their parents bypassed hierarchy mm-hmm. in front of them, right? The teacher didn't say a good thing. They went right to the principal. If they didn't like what the coach said, they went right to the athletic director, right? You and I may have grew up in a household that if your coach said something, your dad would come home and hit you, not hit you, but would say, hey, <laughs> what did you do at school? I mean, it was no discount whatsoever of the coach is wrong. So authority is a really big issue for millennials. And when you look at those two things, that changes the filters and how they deal with stuff. Now, you talked about social media. It's another piece, which is information. They grew up in the world that information is free access, meaning that I should be able to read everything about anything. Why are you holding anything back? So it's the I should because I can syndrome that needs to be altered. So the information is, well, why? tell me more about it. You don't need to know more about it, hierarchy. Well, I want to know more about it. Well, why are you holding it back? Are you holding, right? And all of a sudden, now they're challenging authority. Well, and then you get trust and transparency issues. Exactly. So transparency is this made-up word, and it's really not transparency. It's a lack of hierarchy and authority that's causing the issues of transparency. You said it right a smack dab in the middle, which is, In the beginning, you do have to lay down the ground rules, which is laying out the rules, the roles and responsibilities, what their job function is, what's going to be happening, the base of authority, the reporting process, the do's and don'ts. If you lay it out, I have found them to be incredibly, incredibly followers in that that aspect. Mm -hmm. In the avoidance of it, why wouldn't they go back to what they know to be normal, right? right? I mean, <laughs> well, and it becomes difficult too, I think, because, you know, we're in this ever more producing world, right? Like you got to be more productive. You got to do more. You got to do more. And so I think one of the things that gets left on the side there when you join an organization or when you're within an organization is that like those things of like, hey, here are the rules of the road for working at this company, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like upfront during the interview, during when you're onboarding, like here's how it's going to work, right? I think often Oftentimes, those are not uh, a very robust or exhaustive enough so that maybe, you know, people coming into it have one idea uh, or, or, or lack of an idea. Um, and that's where some of the tension uh, begins to, to come up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, listen, I have, a, I have a, an executive that I coach. <clears throat> Just yesterday, we're having a conversation because he has probably three-fourths of his team as millennials and younger. So when they all come in, he now has a meeting with them about his style. He's a very high dominant personality. He does. He never gives out strokes. He will only see what's wrong. He will never see what's right in anything, which is how his style is. He's been <laughs> this way for a long time. So he'll tell people, if you're here and looking for me to tell you you're doing a good job, I appreciate that. I understand it, but it's not going to happen. So let's part friends now. <laughs> if you're, and he just goes through his list and it's very black and white. So it, it sets the tone for what the fence posts are, which is the rules. And his team does phenomenally well. He doesn't lose anybody, but he has the very black and white rules up front just so there's no misunderstandings. Glenn, let's talk about optimizing our time and efficiency at work. One of the big time sinks for me at work, and I suspect for a lot of us, 
is this idea of delegating work or the management of work to others. Talk, mm. if you would, about the keys to delegating work and management of work. Sure. So that, that's two monstrous topics, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's take a look at delegation for a second. Delegation by its, by its own process is relatively easy, right? So you, you do it, you delegate it, or you dump it. We've heard those three Ds our entire lives. Well, let's take a look at why most people don't delegate. Most people don't delegate historically for a couple of reasons. One is they don't have anyone to delegate it to. The second is, Glenn, it's just faster if I do it myself, right? So I don't have anyone and it's easier if I do it. The third is you have somebody, it may be easier, but you still choose not to, all right? So one is I have zero people. The other is I have somebody, but it's easier. And the third is I got all that, but I'd rather do it myself. Now, if I don't have somebody or you have them, but they don't have the competencies, if they don't have the competencies, what you're doing is it's called short-term pain versus long-term misery, <laughs> right? So Tom, if you came over to my business and I put a piece of duct tape on your forearm, I don't know if you have hair in your forearm or not, but put a piece of duct tape on there. And then 15 minutes later, I said, you know what? I apologize. Take the piece of duct tape off. And we do this as exercises all the time. And you see people looking around, taking out pen knives, taking about, you know, taking out nail polish remover, <laughs> trying to slowly take off this, right? This piece of tape because it hurts. <laughs> and then some people will just turn their head and go, and they rip it right off. So delegation is, do you want short-term misery, short-term pain or long-term misery? Long-term misery is you don't delegate. Short-term pain is you find someone and you develop their competencies that over time they can take more and more away. So the delegation is a short-term fix for a long-term problem in terms of not choosing to delegate. All you're doing is reinforcing your problem. So by not delegating, you're just adding more work. So again, if you don't have a person, that's one thing. If you do have a person, ask yourself, what are the two or three things that I want to delegate? Start easy, start slow. Of the two or three things I want to delegate, have you clearly outlined what they need to do, how they need to do it, and then you need to set up in your calendar when you can review it to make sure it's being done right. Then you can go to the next one, which is do easy. Right? It's easier if you do it yourself. That is 100% true. 100% true. But again, short-term pain, long-term misery. So when you have someone who wants to come in and do it, it will take you three times longer to teach it than it is to do it. Just got to remember, three times longer. Then once they know it, it should go down to being the same. And that's just supervising the ownership. And once they own it, you never have to touch it again. So the better you are at teaching, the faster you don't have to touch it. Now, the last one, unfortunately, Tom, is even if you have someone, you still don't want to. And that's a psychological problem, which is more about being passive aggressive and making sure that you do it right. And there's a whole bunch of other psychological reasons to it. But for the most part, people don't delegate because they don't trust. And the reason I don't trust is they've never developed anybody. I know a few of those people. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, like, for instance, listen, everyone's got them on their team. They're phenomenally good, but you can't, you're not sure they're going to get it done on time. Then you have other people, you know, they're going to get it done on time, but you're not sure if they're really going to make sure the details are all correct. So however, in whatever you need to do to teach it, then you supervise the accuracy in the way that you need it done. And then you let it go. And so, realize forever, they're probably never going to do it as good as you. <laughs> you just kind of have to embrace that. You just, yeah, you got to be the 80% rule. It's 80% good. It's good enough. Keep moving. Well, you, so you pointed to a couple things there and, and they, uh, they were in some ways roadblocks or challenges to the, the delegation piece, right? Mm -hmm. um, are there other uh, challenges we might encounter when we begin to delegate work? Well, some of the other challenges that you can face when you delegate work is 
small things like follow up. Did it get done? Did it get done right? Did they do it accurately? Um, obviously, if you're not sure you even want to delegate and then you do delegate and you find out they did it wrong or they didn't do the way you wanted to, most of us will go berserk and say, see, I, I should never have done this. What am I thinking? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I got outside my comfort zone. Dumb, dumb. <laughs> so <laughs> it, part of the issue with all issues with leadership is we have two rules, very simple rules about development and behavior and leadership and balance in life is that Pretty much every problem that you have in your different roles, sales, management, service, research, doesn't make a difference. All problems occur for one of two reasons historically. Either you did or you said something you were not supposed to, or you didn't do or you didn't say something you were supposed to. So if you remember those two golden rules, that pretty much means everything that's happening is because of you. So if you didn't <laughs> delegate well, right? You got to take ownership and responsibility. You can't say, oh, they're the idiot. You have to turn around and say, what didn't I do? What didn't I say the way I should have said it for them to get it to be better at delegating and handle this? So if the receiver doesn't get the information, it's always the sender's fault. They didn't send it right. Yeah, we, we talk about that a lot. And uh, I used to do improv quite a bit. And uh, oh, cool. yeah, and the, the importance of improv uh, on the sender. Right. So I like that. Let me kind of uh, switch gears here a little bit. Sure. Uh, Glenn, one of the most, I think it's probably one of the most popular topics in blogs and podcasts right now, or at least the ones that I'm following, uh, <laughs> is this, uh, so I'm going to stick with that, is this idea of uh, productivity hacking. So that is finding approaches or tactics to help us amp up our productivity, you know, be it at work or in life. Um, for me, that's one of the biggest challenges I face right now because of my role at my organization and heck, even my role in as a father. Now that we've got a, a third kid in the family. Um, right. yeah, right. <laughs> my time is just becoming really thin sliced. And so I'm always looking for ways to, you know, decrease my time on a task without necessarily suffering uh, a corresponding decrease in quality. One of your areas of expertise in consulting, I think, is doing just that. So from your from your vantage point, from your experience, share with us the most effective habits and practices we can adopt to help us decrease our time on a task without decreasing the quality. You got it. So what I like to do instead of giving you some tactics is to go big picture for a moment and do and, and, and go global. When you look at any problem, Tom, with regards to people, development, execution of process, in terms of identifying the problem or put to get, uh, putting together a solution to the problem, we call it the success triangle. It's three legs, obviously a triangle. Technique, which is what do you need to know and own, know and own, so that you can execute against your plan. That's technique. The behavior is what your goals, plans, and action steps, right? You do your actions, mm -hmm. you accomplish your plan, you achieve your goal, your objectives. That's behavior. And then the, the attitude is all the head, the heart, and the gut stuff that we have either self-limiting beliefs that empower us to do the actions even when we don't want to, or we have self-limiting beliefs that when we know we're supposed to, when we know why we're supposed to do those action steps in the behavioral plan, we still choose not to. It's lack of commitment and bravery issues. Mm -hmm. So when we look at <clears throat> pretty much any problem, let's take productivity for a moment. First question I, would, I always ask people about productivity or effectiveness or efficiency is what's the task at hand? First question then I ask is, okay, do you know what to do? Do you know how to do it? Are you effective at it? That's technique. Now, Tom, the reality is most people are not effective. You can't increase efficiency until you're effective because all you're doing is being bad faster, <laughs> right? So been, may, have, may have been there before. <laughs> yeah, 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 right? I, I'm like, I'm going to get to this nightmare quicker. Um, <laughs> but, 
So the first is, is you have to increase your effectiveness, which typically is technique. Then what happens is to, to take a look at efficiency, we don't look at technique. What we do is look at attitude and behaviors. So within the behavior piece, three questions. What can we eliminate? What can we add? Or what do we have to enhance in what we're currently doing to speed up the process? So maybe in, some, in your research, you may have a four-step process. And you have to do that four-step for every piece of whatever you know, material you're going through. But could you do that same pre-work for seven or eight at once versus doing them one and two and three? So what we're trying to, to find out is the reduction or the lessening the cost of doing something, which is efficiency. But if you're not effective, that's a nightmare. So add, enhance, and eliminate. The next piece is attitude. Do you actually believe it can be done faster? Do you actually believe that you're being inefficient? What's going to happen if you become efficient? What are you going to do with your time? Are you going to add more stuff to it? Are you going to add more free time to it? What's the outcome of being more efficient and effective? So just having intentionality and a goal in mind of like, hey, if, if I gain this time, what am I doing with that? Exactly. So for instance, I, when I talk to about efficiency and effectiveness, I will usually backdoor into how you're dealing with the family, what's going on in your balance of life. We'll have a conversation about how when they're at home, they're still thinking about work. So we have to fix that. And then normally what I'll hear is people complaining or <clears throat> having issues with not being present. So when I'm at home, I'm still thinking about work. So what we do is we take a look at when we're looking at these areas is how to be in the present moment. So when you're at work, you're at work. When you're talking about this client or this situation, your mind isn't going to 17 different things. So that makes us incredibly inefficient also is we're chasing shiny objects during a task. Oh, what about this? What about that? All these things are popping in our head. So a lot of times to be more efficient, we have to shut off, quote unquote, noise. And the noise is important stuff, but it's not critical stuff. And the same thing, like, you know, you, you, I'm sorry, you're with your son. <clears throat> you're walking across the kitchen to go pick something up for him, but you see the coffee mug. So you take the coffee mug, you put it in the sink. You say, oh, you know what? I just put it in the sink. I might as well put it in the dishwasher. You put it in the dishwasher. Then you're walking over and you see this night needs to be moved. So you move that and you forgot what you were doing trying to get over to see your son's toy. <laughs> so we do that all the time at work. So sometimes the efficiency is stop trying to do multiple things and do one thing from start to finish. But again, you have to be effective before you can be more efficient. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, did you ever read uh, or listen to Cal Newport? Yes, I've, I've read a little bit of his stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I mean, so in some ways, that's kind of uh, taking his approach to work uh, to to this uh, idea of efficiency, right? Like, if we're thinking or preoccupied with lots of different things, then we're not going to do that uh, any one thing very well. <laughs> yeah, absolutely right. I mean, some of we call it cognitive dissonance, right? So Sandler, we've been around for forty five years and, and you know, number one in training in the world. But when you look at cognitive dissonance, and some of you may do this, where maybe you're out and you're you're weeding the garden. But when you're really weeding the garden, what you're doing in your brain is thinking about how to solve a business problem. So what you're doing physically is one thing, but you're escaping that and mentally going someplace else. That's great when you're doing weeding for the garden. Yeah. <laughs> it's not great when you're sitting with your son or your daughter and they're three months old and you're playing with them on the couch and what you're thinking about is work. So I may have been guilty of that as well. <laughs> yeah, listen, everyone is. So, so part of it is learning how to live in a now mentally. And if you can live in the now mentally, you can become more efficient because you just shut off the noise.
the noise is the key. Are there techniques or approaches for helping people um, really focus on living in the now? Well, yeah. I mean, there, there's uh, the couple that I can give those people listening to the podcast. So for instance, when you start doing, I should have, could have, would have mindsets. Why didn't I do this? I should have done this. I, I could have done that. When you do the should have, could have, would have, what happens is we are reliving a past event. And by reliving the past event, our emotions go back to what they felt like in the past event. The problem is, is that we're not learning a lesson from it. And we're not, if we don't learn a lesson, we can't let it go. And if we don't let it go, it's called guilt. If we can let it go, it's called a lesson. So if you're, <laughs> if you're ever thinking about, oh, I should have done this yesterday. Why didn't I do this? What happens about whenever that stuff pops up, Tom, easiest thing I tell my clients is what's your lesson? What's your lesson? What's your lesson? What's your lesson? If they gain the lesson, the next bullet is let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. When we think about the future, we're doing if I, then therefore shall happen. If this occurs, if this happens, then this is what's going to happen. There's no reality to that, but we connect the dots. And by us connecting the dots, we are so far off the reservation emotionally that we are all of a sudden have not worry, not anxiety, because an anxiety is actually a good thing. Anxiety tells your body, hey, we got to get up. We got to get moving here. This is so important. Anxiety, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Anxiety is fantastic. It's what you do with anxiety that's the problem. So people who worry, they feel anxiety is bad and they, they choose to have worry as an immobilizing atmosphere time. So what happens when they get immob- when they get worried, they don't do anything. And if they don't change the present actions, what they're worrying about will come to fruition. So because they worry, they actually create what they're afraid of. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So worry, to break worry, it's one word, action. To break guilt, lesson, let it go. Problem is we all grew up in households, most of us, that worry and guilt is a learned trait, which is if you care, you would feel guilty. If you care, you'd be worried. We weren't born with worry and, and, and guilt. We've learned it. There's only two fears we're born with. Everything else is learned. That's really fascinating because I, I definitely fall into that category of doing a lot of woulda, shoulda, coulda. <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it's, uh, I'm a little slow processing just because it's a, <laughs> you know it's a little bit of a mind blow for me. Like I said, it's uh, it's something you you care about it, but that letting go piece I think is is, is can be a challenge for for us. So I. Uh, if nothing else, I if nothing else from this conversation, I will be taking that away. I've already scribbled some notes here to uh, in my in my, oh, yeah. in my journal, so uh, I appreciate so if, that. If, if you actually just put your hands out left to right, so you're standing up and doing a T bar, right, with your mm-hmm. hands, your arms are left and right. Your your right hand is the past. Your left hand is the future. Your head is the present moment. You choose to have your emotions in either of your hands because they're not there right now. They're in your body, which is the present moment. You choose to let your mind go to your left hand or your right hand. And when it does, so the first step, Tom, is being aware of it. The second step of fixing this stuff is you're never not going to have the scripts play in your head. The shoulda, coulda, woulda, that takes a while to fix. You're going to have those things popping in your head. What you can learn how to do is not listen. And when you start to fight your guilt feelings and your, your worry feelings, Trust me, your self-esteem is not going to be happy that you're trying to discount it. It actually gets quite pissed. And what it does, it gets louder in your head and it yells at you. It actually yells in your head. So you'll turn around and say, listen, okay, my lesson was I should have started this early. I should have done this. I should have done this. Okay, now let it go. And then five seconds later, you're going to hear another voice in your head. Are you serious? You're really going to let that go? Are you trying to tell me that? that?" And it'll just start dumping on you because your psyche likes who you are. 
And when you want to change it, your psyche will fight you. But once you change, it'll love you and it won't let you go back. Well, that's probably why for a lot of people, like, I mean, change is a really, really difficult thing, right? You don't hear too many people changing massive parts of their life or their personality uh, or the way that they are without, you know, some effort. Oh, in, in a lot of that effort, because some of the things we're talking about are attitudinal, you know, attitudinal roadblocks. So to have those, they're called banal scripts. So you need a pretty massive thing, almost dying, right? Getting in a car crash or your friend's kids pass away because of heroin. Now you're going to have the guts to say what you need to do to your kids before you're being wimpy, right? Mm -hmm. So you have these life-changing events that slap you. And the, that typically is what gives people that ability to make those huge shifts. But if you look at some of the stuff we're talking about in terms of change, you're better off Again, anytime that you want to make change, it's awareness, motivation, and tools. The three things you need to have. You got to be, you got to be aware of what's going on and what to do. Mm -hmm. You got to have the tools to do it. And you got to have the motivation to follow through. Now, with all that though, is for everyone listening in, one of the greatest things that you can teach yourself or teach anyone else is how to gain a lesson every day. What was my lesson for today? Not what did I do wrong? See, in the past, when your dad was around, you know, uh, younger and my dad was younger, mm -hmm. when you failed, you failed at something. It was an action. I failed at golf. I failed at that machinery. I failed at punching the card right. I failed at. Well, since then to now, especially millennials, I failed at has converted to I'm a failure. It's become a character flaw, you know, a flaw of me as a human uh, versus uh, that specific action. Exactly. That's exact. So you, you hit the tours right in the head. So what's happened is an action has been transformed into an identity. And one of the absolute most important things people must hopefully get is that failure is absolutely one of the most critical things to embrace to be successful. And those people who choose to fail is because they have a negative connotation to failure. Therefore, they're going to take less risks, which means they're not going to get outside their comfort zone, even when they know they're supposed to. Failure is nothing more than getting a result that is different than what you were hoping for. That's all it is. So if you can learn from that, then you're going to know how to do it right next time. We wouldn't have light bulb. None of us would be walking right now if we were born with fear of failure. Kid <laughs> falls down, stands up, falls down, stands up, falls down, stands up, right? Mm -hmm. We're the ones as parents that teach kid failure is bad. Don't put yourself out there too much, Nancy. What happens if you don't make the soccer team? You're going to feel bad. Well, that's because they're taking the risk. And part of it is they may not make the team. That's failure. But so we try to insulate our kids from failure. And by doing so, we never teach them how to handle it. And because of that, they're afraid of it, which is why they don't take risks. Yeah. And the resilience goes down. And oh, the whole thing. It's a rippling effect. <laughs> and the sad thing is. The people who are afraid of failure are the majority of the people who make excuses. And excuse making is one of the biggest negatives of any, any company, department, or group of people. By far, it's the biggest vampire we have. Excuse making is rampant. Yeah. Well, I couldn't have put a better bow on that one uh, than you. So let me let, let's do this. Let's uh, let's shift to uh, what I think is probably uh, one of my favorite parts of the show, at least for myself and for my guests usually. Um, and this is where we get to talk about one of the best habits uh, we can adopt today, and that's the habit of reading. Glenn, I want you to think about the books you've really enjoyed over the years, or books that have impacted you deeply. What are the two or three books that that stand out for you? Um, 
I'm a pretty avid reader. So what I would throw at you, and I got this from a 78-year-old English gentleman before I went on to do a keynote. He was right before me. I had a book, and this is what he said. So there's a difference between reading and learning. Reading, you can have, you do one book at a time. Learning, you'll have eight, nine, 10, 12 books going at the same time. So what learning means, real quick, Tom, is you read until you go, whoa, wow, that was good, right? Until you hit that lightning bolt. Not something that you highlight, but something you go, that, that was good. And what you do is you transfer that lightning bolt to a three by five card. Then you close the book and you don't open that book until you've actually applied your genius attack. Apply it. If you don't apply it, reading does you no good. So there's a difference between learning and development, learning and knowledge. Learning is reading, knowledge is applying. So reading a book, that's a tip. The books that I have found to be quite successful for me, um, and I'm going to be a little biased because one of them's our book, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we have lots of them. Nothing so, wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I would tell you there's a couple of head books, psych books that I find are great. The first one is Scripts People Live By, by Claudia Steiner. It's a little heavy. Anything written by Eric Byrne is phenomenal. Okay, not okay theory, transactional analysis. That'll help everyone listening in to understand, really, it's an ops manual for human beings. So those two books are really, I found to be in, in, immensely helpful. I love that idea of of reading until you have that kind of aha moment or that uh, that light bulb moment. And then taking that and transferring that to a card as kind of your queuing function to like you know, remind you. And then even further going and applying what you've learned from that, uh, operationalize it, right? Because um, mm-hmm. I'm one of those people that uh, I, I probably read I, I very rarely finish books, but at any given time, I'll have, you know, five, six books that I'm reading Perfect. through um, mm-hmm. and kind of uh, jumping around to, you know, little bits and pieces that stand out to me. No, absolutely. And and, and, and you may never f- finish a book, right? So when people ask me, hey, did you read this book? I'm like, ah, I don't know. But if you start talking about it, I'm like, yeah, I got that. Now, I when maybe I'll tell you where I read what I'm talking about, because again, I have so many books. But the key is, do you want to read or do you want to learn? Do you want to read or do you want to develop? So that's a little tip. Another two books I'd throw at you is both by Sandler. Um, the first one is The Success Principles. It's a phenomenal book. It talks about the fundamentals of successful people and what makes them successful and what makes mediocre people mediocre. It's actually a phenomenal book. And the third one is something that just came out. This is really more for executives, managers, and entrepreneurs. It's called The Six P's of Excellence. It's a phenomenal book and literally a blueprint, step one, step two, step three. So if you have entrepreneurs who are trying to figure out how to grow, how to develop, or how to transform a business, it's what we use. And we've been doing it with Harvard for years in terms of the process. Um, it's phenomenal. And it's, it's a book written to be read by someone with step-by-step uh, action items and strategy. Uh, final question. Uh, what are you working on now that you're really excited about or maybe something that's coming up that you're excited about? Interestingly enough, we're putting together a whole new program for a different type of marketplaces, the financial services, which have massive turnover and some major issues that they have in their own specific space. So we have a whole new program going out for brand new organizational people, new org, helping individuals transform their practice into business owners. So that's a pretty neat little thing that we're doing. Um, The other thing that is real exciting that we're having coming up is really helping people, not just on strategy, but having them understand there's a difference between training and changing. 
And that success triangle that we talked about in terms of attitude, behavior, and technique is really helping people change. So it's regardless if you're talking about home, being at home, how to be a better better mother, a better husband, a better spouse, anything that has to be with better is taking a look at how do you do that, and that's that success triangle. So we're we're developing that in about four or five different mediums, which is super, super exciting. Oh, fantastic. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing some of those uh, when they when they uh, come out. Yeah, it'd be really good stuff. Glenn, I just want to say thank you. This was a fantastic uh, interview. I'm taking away some really concrete uh, tips and, and practices for uh, to adopt in my own life. So I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you being here with us today. Absolutely. I thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for having me. And I hope everyone listening has learned at least one or two things that will help them become more productive, more efficient, and more effective. You can connect with Glenn online through his website, matson.sandler.com. That's M-A-T-T-S-O-N dot S-A-N-D-L-E-R.com. All the links and resources Glenn and I discuss can be found at the page created just for this episode. You'll find it all at nextyearnowpodcast.com slash 27. And finally, just a reminder, if you like the show and enjoy learning from our guests each week, please consider giving us a rating and review on iTunes. It helps us stay relevant and findable by listeners like you. That's it for today. See you next time.